Uh, now, you may not uh, believe this, uh, but as a kid, I was a bit of a rat bag. In grade four, I was uh, causing so much trouble that I had my own special workbook that I was supposed to do extra work in at home, which of course I didn't do. Once when I was playing with the neighborhood kids, uh, one of their fathers actually came out to tell me off for something I did. And of course, I can't remember what it was that I did. My own parents, they often got pushed to their limits when they were disciplining me, and sometimes they struggled to keep their cool. As a matter of fact, uh, they were so concerned about the path that I was on uh, that they ended up, despite their penny-pinching instincts, to send me to a Christian school to try and straighten me out. Being the youngest of three kids, I was the only one that was not sent to a public school. So that gives you a bit of a picture of the kind of problematic child that I was. That I was. Well, what do you do with, with a troublesome, an unfaithful, a difficult child? Now, before you uh, get ahead of yourself and think I'm about to preach about parenting tips for rebellious children, allow me to direct your gaze at the Bible and the passage that we're looking at today. And I say all of that by way of introduction to get us thinking about the dynamic of that parent-child relationship. Uh, Because in our passage this morning, Paul uses the father-child image to drive home a point for the Corinthians. Paul is admonishing them. He is admonishing them. And I don't know if you caught the definition up on the screen before, but to admonish is to gently but firmly call someone to change their, their ways. And to do so in such a way that, that seeks to not embitter them, to seek, seeks not to make them feel angry about it. And so, our question, our question that I would love to, for you to be considering this morning, is how do you respond to admonition? How do you respond to admonition, to that kind of of correction where somebody is pointing something out in your life that perhaps you need to change or you need to repent of. What's your natural response to that? Because Paul shows us in this passage that the Christian, the person whose greatest love is the Heavenly Father, responds with humility. Which is why our title is Humble Submission to Admonition. Let's take a look at this through the prism of two points. The first being the admonition of a loving father. The admonition of a loving father. What's your relationship with your father like? Perhaps it's good. Perhaps... He's no longer with us. Perhaps you never had one around. Even though the fall has broken so many of our families and relationships with our fathers, this is language, these these are ideas that surely we can relate to. So that even though you may have not uh, experienced having a good father yourself, 
there is still, isn't there, in all of us, this universal sense that the love between a father and his child ought to be unique and special, ought to be something uh, to be celebrated, to long for and to love. And Paul, as he so often does, draws on this image in this passage. And so as we work our way through it and we consider spiritual admonition, it's worth us considering ourselves how our relationships with our Heavenly Fathers might be colouring the way we hear uh, what God is saying to us in this passage. Remember that the father-child relationship that we're reading about is one that is of a good kind. And so just to reorient us where we're at in this letter, this is the final section of what has been a four chapters long response to the issue of division. So you might remember a while ago now, it began in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, when Paul talked about the divisions that were happening in the Corinthian church. He had heard about it from a report uh, from Chloe's people. And he said, I want you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And the way that Paul spells out for them to do that over the course of the, the next sections in, uh, in his letter is by talking about the wisdom of the cross and how that wisdom is foolishness to this world. And talking about how worldly wisdom is nothing compared to God's wisdom. And how God's wisdom produces Christ-like leadership. That's what Paul then goes on to say, to, to seek to address this issue. And so it's important to remember that, to remember that fact, that, that this section we're looking at is at the end of this very long section in answer to that issue... Because even though it's taken us nine weeks to preach through it, it's all addressing that one main problem. It's dealing with the division of the Corinthians over different leaders. All of the various biblical truths that we've extracted along the way, Paul wrote for the purpose of addressing this matter. So it's interesting to see that in the midst of that, what we see here in our passage this morning is Paul tying off this section before uh, he goes on to t- apply those truths to other specific areas in the church. Paul here is reasserting his authority with the church. Let's have a look in our Bibles and have a read of verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You might remember from last week that uh, Paul called out the so-called wise people in the church. They were puffed up and arrogant. They were thinking that they were so great that they were already reigning, that they'd achieved great worldly success. And with biting irony, Paul applies the way of the cross by showing to them that Christ-like leaders are ultimately servants. Christ-like leaders are ultimately those who are willing to be stomped on and to be thrown onto the rubbish heap for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those that they serve. That is what a true leader does. And those sharp words obviously would have caused the Corinthians to feel ashamed of themselves, which is why Paul says what he does here in this uh, verse, in verse 14. And yet it's important for us to realize that this isn't Paul saying that he's never willing to challenge the Corinthians with something that should make them feel ashamed. 
After all, all you have to do is read a couple of chapters later into 1 Corinthians, and you'll see in chapter 6, verse 5, that Paul gives an example of where they should be ashamed. I say this to your shame, he says. Of course, we'll get to that in a few weeks, but Paul's point here in our passage is that he doesn't want them to just feel ashamed of the fact that they've been gloating about how good they are, but he wants them to feel his rebuke and change. He wants them to hear what he's just said and respond. I admonish you as my beloved children. I admonish you as my beloved children. Paul is admonishing the Corinthians. He's appealing to them. He's gently rebuking them out of love for them because he wants them to reject worldly wisdom. And he does so because he is their spiritual father. Let's have a look at verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word translated here, guide, in the ESV, uh, refers to a servant who had responsibility for the children, similar to uh, like a nanny today. Guides would be responsible for looking after children, uh, but also responsible for instructing them, teaching them, sometimes even disciplining them. And while they had responsibilities and authority that overlapped with that of the father, ultimately they were still servants. And ultimately the nature of the relationship between the guide and the child just couldn't compare to the relationship between the father and the child. Paul is saying, these sophists, these wise guys that you guys are listening to, that you're falling in love with, that you think are so brilliant, these guys who think they're superior Christian leaders. They're a dime a dozen. They don't really love and care about you the way that a father does. They don't really love and care about you the way that I do. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, he says. And you see, this is what the gospel does. When somebody hears the good news of Jesus dying on their cross for their sins and turns away from their sin, from living for themselves and believes in Jesus and surrenders their lives to Him, they receive a new family in God's church. Jesus Himself talks about this in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30. He says, If anybody leaves all of these things for me, Will they not receive a hundredfold these things? Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children for me. Well, that is fulfilled in the church. Paul is saying that I became your father as the one who first preached the gospel to you and saw you become children of God. And as a result, I have become your spiritual father Become, that word there is is the same word for for, uh, begat, to be born, birthed. And so as your spiritual father, Paul says, as one who loves you as my own children, hear and receive my admonition. This is what a loving father does. 
And a loving father knows that a child who is admonished constantly and with harsh and unloving words will only serve to embitter them quickly. Will only serve to make them hate their father quickly. And now sometimes a a firmer approach is necessary, which we're going to get to later on. But the baseline of a loving father is gentle admonition. And this isn't the only thing that a loving father does. What does verse 16 say? I urge you then, be imitators of me. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Or I urge you therefore to be imitators of me. Don Carson makes the point that to our modern and individualistic ears, we may not naturally see why there's a therefore in this sentence. Uh, Why should we imitate Paul if he's our spiritual father? Well, in Paul's culture, the father was held in much higher regard by his family and had much more authority than what we generally see today. And not only that, but it was normal for sons to learn the family trade. Thus, the sons would imitate the fathers by getting into the family business. And so Paul is saying that because he is their spiritual father, and not just one of these guides, not just one of these uh, philosophers or clever public speakers, you know, who want to gain more followers, the equivalent of which would be more followers on Twitter these days. Because he's not one of them, because he's not somebody who's just been paid to look after them and instruct them, because there is a familial relationship between Paul and his church, this this Corinthian church, this means that they ought to look at Paul as a father and to see and and to watch him, to observe how he lives and realize, hey, this is how a Christian lives. Paul, of course, later on in the letter would make this even clearer by saying in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so when Paul is urging them to imitate them in our passage, he's not saying, hey guys, be like me because I'm the man. He's not saying, hey, you've got a pretty great example of a Christian here, so, you know... He's not encouraging them to do basically the very thing he's been telling them off for. You know, have they been saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow... No, he's not, he's not saying imitate me the way they mean it. He's urging the Corinthians to turn away from the wisdom of the world, to, to live by the wisdom of the cross. And because Paul is doing that, he's saying, hey, follow Christ and watch me, look at my life, do what I have done. Do the things that you have seen me do, because that is the way of the cross. That's why he goes on in verse 17 to say that this is the reason he sent Timothy. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Because Timothy, unlike the Corinthians, has been a faithful child in the Lord and now lives a life in Christ that is worth copying. He's hung out with Paul, he's walked closely with him, he's sat under his teaching, he's seen how Paul's life lines up with what he's been teaching. And so he, in turn, has done the same. That's why Paul has sent him, because Timothy, 
is an example to the Corinthians of what boasting in God and not in men looks like. Paul says, I'm sending him to remind you of my ways in Christ. How quickly, how easily do we forget what it means to live for Jesus? Our pride in our foolish wisdom, our intuition that tells us, oh, you're not that bad a person. The whisper of the devil in our ears that tells us that we can be like God. Our sin constantly pulls us in the direction of forgetting Jesus and living for ourselves. This young church in Corinth was was already a mess. It hadn't even been that long. And were it not for God's grace, our young church would be a mess too. We must remind ourselves constantly of God's truth in His Word. And this truth, this life, it's not something that's unique to the Corinthians. Or something that, you know, Paul changes wherever he goes or applies differently to different people. He says, as I teach them everywhere in every church, it's the same message, it's the same gospel. It produces the same fruit, it's the same God, the same Holy Spirit. The Corinthians, they thought they were something special. They thought they had wisdom that uh, Paul couldn't tap into. You know, they thought that they had leveled up on him. But no, Paul says, you've actually gone rogue. You've gone AWOL. You're off the grid. That message is still the same. The way of the cross is still the same. And that is the message that God has given me to teach to everyone, to every church, everywhere. And that's why unity must be founded in the gospel. That's why any kind of unity must have its foundation in the work of the cross. That's why we talked about it several weeks ago. You can't be united in the same mind and the same judgment unless you are united in the gospel. You can't have Christian unity unless you're clear about the gospel and that, and that that is the thing that you unite around. You can't have the same mind, the same judgment unless you agree on the truth. And any attempt to have some kind of unity in Christianity, to have some kind of unity in churches on something else other than the gospel is building the church on a foundation that will collapse. And that's why Paul can say this. That's that's why he says, guys, this is the message I've been proclaiming all along. It's not that I've changed it, it's that you've forgotten it. Every church around the world believes and lives by this same message. Stopping an arrogant outlier and live the way Jesus calls you to live. Paul is giving the Corinthians the admonition of a father. And he does it on behalf of the Heavenly Father. If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 14. Hebrews 12, 3 to 14. It speaks clearly about this. And I'll I'll put up verse 7 on the screen. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is what a loving father does. This is what my dad did for me. This is what I do for my kids. And this is what our Heavenly Father does for His children whom He loves. So that we might grow in holiness and in Christ-likeness. And this is what Paul does for his beloved Corinthians. So that they might wake up from their stupor and reject the fake wisdom of the world. Responding to the gospel and becoming part of a church automatically creates this kind of relationship. You are brought into a family. And in this family, God doesn't give you guides who wield loveless authority, who are simply paid to do the job. No, God gives you mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who love you, who care for you, who want to see you grow in spiritual health and who will do the spiritual equivalent of driving you to your soccer games, of helping you with your homework, of giving you hugs when you experience heartbreak and telling you to eat your peas. And yes, they will also tell you when you need to break up with that guy and when you need to keep spending, when you need to spend less time on Netflix and spend more time in the Word and when you need to stop listening to silly people. And they will do it because they love you. That is why God has given us his church. And this is also why God has given His church elders. Because as spiritual fathers who are mature in the faith, they will help you to grow in God's wisdom and understanding of His Word. They will help you to see how you are to live that out in your life. And by God's grace, they will model that to you so that you may see it and imitate it. That's why almost every trait that qualifies an elder in 1 Timothy and in Titus is to do with their character and godliness. That's why one of the first things that we look for in an elder is whether he is humble and whether his default response to waywardness is gentleness. How do you respond to admonition? Because seriously, like, who likes being told what to do, right? Allow me to give you an example of admonition. Hello, my boy. Thank you. Kids, look up at me for a second. What do you guys think? Do you like it when your parents tell you off? We, we don't really like it, generally, do we? But tell me, kids, why do your parents tell you off? Can anyone tell me? My kids told me this morning. Anyone over there? No? It's because 
They love you. Isn't that true? They will tell you off. They will admonish you. They will do something that, to, to encourage you or motivate you to stop doing something wrong because they love you and because they want you to do the right thing. Right? Even when sometimes it may not seem like that. Even when we do it imperfectly. I mean, we naturally just, we naturally just don't like admonition, do we? Who does? And yet, at the same time, we all know that we need it. In order to get better at something, you need to be told what you're doing wrong, don't you? I mean, a netball coach or a piano teacher you know, has got to tell you to either plant your feet or hold your hands this way and to keep telling you how to do that and keep pulling you up when you're not doing it properly in order for you to get better. We, we get that. The book of Proverbs makes the observation several times throughout the whole book that we need to listen to instruction if we want to be wise. Even right at the start of the book, Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's a self-evident truth that anyone can understand that if you want to improve, you need to hear and heed instruction and change. But why is it that whenever we do receive correction, why is it that whenever that comes, our heart rates increase and our bodies lock up and something from deep within just begins to charge its way up our esophagus and come out and defend our honour? Why do we so instinctively resist admonition? And I mean, this is just in simple matters, right? I'm just talking about trying to get better at playing an instrument or something. Let alone what Paul's talking about here, which is our holiness and our living for the Lord, something of far greater consequence than anything else. Why do we naturally get defensive when we receive admonition? Well, that my friend, is your own sin. And all of us have it. You might be the most teachable person on the planet, but I bet that it wouldn't take long to find an area of your life that you're pretty pleased with and that you think you're pretty successful at and you're pretty good in and to see that you're probably more reluctant to receive instruction in that. Or perhaps it's an even harder test to receive that instruction from someone who is significantly younger than you. We know from Paul's letters to Timothy that he was young, and so I'm pretty confident that he would have been younger than at least some of the people in the Corinthian church, and yet here he is, their spiritual father, telling them that he's going to send them Timothy so that they can actually look at him and say, here is what a Christian is supposed to live like. Imagine your heavenly father or your spiritual father telling you that you need to learn about godliness from someone who is decades younger than you. Are you still ready and willing to receive that? You see, your heart, like mine, 
naturally resists and opposes God. In our pride, we don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to live lives of obedience and godliness and Christ-likeness. And that's why we so desperately need the Gospel. Which brings us to point two. The Gospel produces humility. The Gospel produces humility. You see, sin by its very nature is proud. The original temptation in the garden by the serpent to Adam and Eve was to be like God and to know good and evil. That's exactly what he tempted them with. The crazy thing is that they were already made in the image of God. And yet this temptation appealed to wanting more appealed to them wanting to be on the same level as God. And you know what? Not just the same level, but to be able to be above God and sit in judgment on Him, to have His wisdom, His knowledge. They were not content with the life and the many blessings that He had already given them. Sin within us is always exalting ourselves above God. Our sinful instinct and our reflex is that we know better than Him. That we deserve to sit in judgment over Him. And you know, that may, that may not look the same way in all of us. Obviously, in some people, that comes out as, as raging against God. As in others, it will come out in complacent happiness with my own life. But that impulse in every person is there. And Paul here actually calls out the select few who are probably the main agitators causing the division in the Corinthian church and who are trying to undermine his authority as an apostle. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 in our passage. Some are arrogant, and though I were not, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Now, just to be clear, this, this doesn't mean that because there's only a few people who are arrogant that everybody else was humble. You only have to go a few verses down to 1 Corinthians 5.2 or a few verses earlier in chapter 4, verse 6, where the same Greek word for arrogant is translated as puffed up, which is what it literally means, to see that everybody in the church and certainly all of us, have this problem. But Paul is here specifically addressing this group who are the big talkers. They are the ones who are the mice who think the cat has gone away, or the kid who loves to talk big in front of his friends and then realises when he gets home that daddy is actually a lot bigger. They're talking up as though they think they're pretty great. And Paul is saying that he's going to come, Lord willing, which, by the way, is a great phrase to continue to use to remind ourselves of that biblical truth that all we do is subject to the Lord's will. He says, Lord willing, I'm going to come and see these boasters, these arrogant people, and see not their talk, but their power. Why? Why? 
Well, what does verse 20 say? For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The word behind uh, power here is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the English word for dynamite. And if you've been around in church a little while, you might have heard a a preacher try to equate the meaning of dynamite with this meaning of power, which makes you think that, oh, it must be something explosive. Well, dunamis actually has a much broader range of meaning than that and is used in several ways to mean different things. And so if we want to know what Paul means by power in this passage and in this letter, well, then the first place to look is how does he use the word in this letter? And more specifically, especially, we want to see how he uses it in this section that we've just been preaching on for so long. Well, let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This message of the gospel, this word of the cross is folly to the world, but the power of God to those of us being saved. Let's continue to verse 22 of that same chapter. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In this verse, there is, there is a clear refutation of the idea that Paul is talking about miraculous signs when he uses the word power and miracles and wonders. Right here, he's saying, we preach the message of the cross instead of giving the Jews what they want in their demanding for signs or giving the Greeks what they want in their demand for wisdom. So called. And so from these two passages, we get the picture that the gospel message of the cross, the message that Jesus saves sinners like you and me when we put our faith in Him, that is the power of God. That is real power. But we still have one more section to look at. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, it's true that in other parts of Paul's letters, Paul does use this word power to refer to miracles and signs, And as a capital A apostle, he has the authority to do that. But that's another conversation. And given the context of this whole section in chapters 1 to 4, and what we've just read, it is clear that that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's driving the point home that the wisdom of men can't even hold a candle to the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is displayed in the cross. And the cross has true spiritual power which results in saving faith. 
The wisdom of the cross, the power of the cross results in spiritual rebirth of a person. They are born again and they turn from their sins and trust in Christ and in Him alone. That, that is how their faith can rest not in man's wisdom but in the power of God. We could go on to explore how Paul uses this word in other letters, but you get the point. When he talks about the kingdom of God consisting not in talk, but in power, he's referring to the fact that worldly wisdom and philosophical talk that doesn't have the gospel is hollow and powerless. It is empty talk. The kingdom of God has the gospel for its foundation and the gospel has the power to transform lives and bring dead hearts to life. Paul is addressing these puffed up boasters who think that they are so great that they've got such great wisdom. And he's saying to them, let's see whether the spirit of God really is at work in your life. Let's see whether it is producing fruit. Let's see whether the power of the cross has created humility within you. Let's see whether you boast in God and not in men. Let's see whether you strive for unity in the gospel. And let's see whether you are willing to be rejected by the world, trampled on and thrown under the rubbish heap and live cross-shaped lives. Let's see whether that spiritual power is at work in your life. Paul already knows the answer to that, though, doesn't he? (laughs) That's why he's just spent so many words addressing them. That's why he says what he does in verse 21. Let's have a look. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in his spirit of gentleness. Paul knows that these Corinthians, they are just full of hot air and that they're not living with true spiritual power. And so he once again uses the father image to jolt them into action. Now, his two options here, they're not suggesting that if he comes with a rod, that it won't be with love. You know, that's clear from verse 14. He he refers to them as his beloved children. Whether he comes with a rod or whether he comes with gentleness is highlighting whether he's going to be coming with firm admonition or not. Either way, his actions will be out of love. And so Paul is saying, are you going to change, Corinthians? Are this letter and are the presence of Timothy among you? Are they going to bring about repentance in you? 
Will you stop drinking spiritual milk? Will you feed on the gospel? Will you be reminded of my ways in Christ? And will you realize that chasing worldly wisdom, chasing earthly crowns, and forgetting that Jesus calls you to take up your cross? Will you see that that is the path to destruction? My children, whom I love dearly, will you turn from your love of this world? Will you turn to Jesus so that I may come in a spirit of gentleness? So that I may come and embrace you in my arms as brothers and sisters in Christ. Or will you remain stubborn and hard-hearted? And need me to come with a rod. Out of love for his spiritual children, Paul will represent his heavenly father in bringing firm words to turn the Corinthians away from their sin and towards Jesus. How do you respond to admonition? (coughs) Loving, loving admonition is always intended to bring about good and godly change. It's never intended to make you hate your parents or hate God or become salty. Yes, there is a time for stronger admonition, hence the rod, hence chapter 5, which we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. But our first response, and for as long as possible, we ought to be coming to our brothers and sisters in humility, in love, and with an urgent appeal for them to turn to Jesus and to grow in holiness. But how do we do that? What does that look like? (laughs) It's one thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to do. See, the hard thing about admonition is that once we see that it's a good and godly thing and that the Lord Himself does it for our good... Well, the tendency can be to create a culture where everyone is just looking over their shoulder and they're all worried about putting a foot wrong. And people are understandably nervous about inviting admonition and the fear that that may make a church look like a cult where if you break rank, you're going to get flogged. 
Of course, on this side of heaven, we still battle with our own sins. So how could we possibly admonish one another in a healthy way? Well, this is where the gospel comes in. One of the reasons Paul has spoken so much about the wisdom of the cross being foolishness to the world is because it completely reshapes our view of ourselves. In taking out our hearts, our hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh when we're converted, when we turn to Christ and turn away from our sin, God gives us a completely different compass. True north is no longer in the direction of finding our worth in how great we are, in the pleasures we can experience, or in the things that we can do that we can boast about. God transforms our hearts completely so that when we look at the cross, we realize that it was our sin that required the death of the Son of God. We realize, as Phil Johnson says in American Gospel, that it's not a question of why do bad things happen to good people. Because there was only ever one good person that ever walked the earth. And that's Jesus. And we realize that all people, that includes you, that includes me, are bad that none is righteous, that no one does good, as Romans 3 says. And so therefore the more appropriate question to ask is not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Why is it that a wretch like me deserves the grace of God? Are you amazed that you are a Christian? Do you marvel, do you wonder at the fact that that is even possible? The fact that anyone in this whole world is afforded the opportunity to be shown the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God. Are you amazed at the fact that that any of us would turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus and to live for Him alone is nothing short of a miracle. How is it that me, a sinner who deserves the wrath, who deserves the punishment of God because He is perfectly righteous, because He is perfectly holy, How is it that me, who deserves nothing short of hell, could be shown God's great love through Jesus on the cross? The gospel reminds us that not even our best good works are enough to give ourselves any credit in our salvation bank balance with God. It reminds us that any good work that we might be or any good work that we might do is all because of grace. Yes, we partner in that work. Yes, we strive in that work. But none of that comes because of our natural ability or because of any natural good that we might have. And that realization 
That humbles us. Or at least it ought to. That realization causes us to put to death the pride that thinks that everyone else has a problem but me. That realization causes us to put to death the pride that says, it's not me, it's you. The pride that thinks, man, I don't know how all these people could, can be walking around with these huge logs in their eyes. The pride that wants to be at the top when dishing out admonition. The gospel causes us to be more thoughtful and reflective about our own sin. It reminds us to be vigilant against it because we know, just like a car whose steering wheel is out of alignment, that if we just let go, we're actually going to drift off the road and into a tree. When we remind ourselves of the cross, we gladly receive admonition from others because we see that it is our loving heavenly father who works through our brothers and sisters who works through others to form and to shape us and to make us more like Christ and the heart that has been regenerated it wants to be more like Christ and by God's grace we desire admonition we seek it out even though we know that it might be hard, even though we know that it might be painful, that it might separate joints and marrow, we plead with God to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, that we might share in His holiness. In the shadow of the cross, there is no room for arrogance. In the shadow of the cross, there is no room for boasting. And that's true whether you're the one receiving admonition or whether you're the one giving it. How can you possibly admonish somebody else with any kind of superiority when you stand in the shadow of the cross? Paul's point in addressing the division at Corinth was to make them see that they're boasting and that this superiority was a result of their sin. And that's why, we, that's why he can tell them to imitate them. Because it's not about him trying to get the Corinthian church to do what he wants them to do. It's about telling them to live the cross-shaped life. And that the gospel produces that, not, not self-made success. And so for us, as we seek to do this with one another, as we seek to admonish one another... Well, if you think that there is something that you need to bring to the attention of a brother or a sister, then check your own heart first. Ask yourself, am I wanting to admonish them out of any sense of my own pride? Am I wanting to point out that person's sin because as an Australian, we love to cut down the tall poppies and make ourselves feel better by leveling everything out? Am I taking some kind of pleasure or glee in thinking that, oh yeah, that person's got that sin and I'm better? If your motivation to admonish another brother or sister of Christ, in Christ, isn't love, 
And if you haven't figured out how to do that in gentleness, then spend some more time at the foot of the cross. Because all of us, even the elders that you have appointed and given authority to, as ones who are examples of godly maturity, who are like spiritual fathers, all of us, every single one of us, is merely a beggar trying to tell another beggar where to get some bread. The cross humbles us. The gospel humbles us. How do you respond to admonition? Do you do so in the way that I've just described? Or are you more likely to respond to it with a thousand justifications of your actions? You see, the proud heart neither desires admonition nor gives out admonition in a way that actually has the other person's good and growth as their highest priority. The proud person continues to convince themselves that, you know what, I'm actually doing pretty well. The proud person doesn't seek to be admonished or grow in holiness because they're pretty convinced that, you know, things are great, me and God are good, without actually understanding or considering any, any way that whether that's actually true or not according to God's Word. The proud person doesn't even want to be humbled. They'd much rather get their ticket to heaven and then go and do whatever they want. Is that you? Because if it is, friend, take to heart Paul's warning this morning. You can either continue to justify yourself now and try to justify yourself on the day Christ returns and discover that your justification will be thrown out in God's court. Or you can be justified by God now by recognizing that the penalty for your sin is death. And that Jesus took that penalty on the cross for you. And He invites you to receive His righteousness by putting your faith in Him so that on the day that He returns, you can be justified in His sight. The Gospel humbles us. Whether that be for the first time, or for the 10,000th time. I pray that we would be a church known for its humility and holiness by God's grace. I mentioned at the start that I was a ratbag kid. And obviously, at some point between then and now, something has changed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be an elder here at Emmaus Road. Well, what happened? The gospel happened. 
When I was around 13, I turned from my sin and I received Christ as Saviour and things changed. When I was around 16, I remember reading in Scripture that one of God's commands to me was to honour my mother and father. And at that stage, my relationship with my parents, particularly my mother, was a bit rocky, a little bit tense. I realised in that moment that I needed to humble myself and stop being at war with them. And of course, our relationship wasn't suddenly fixed and God still continues to humble me by His Spirit to show me where I need to grow and how I honour my mother and father in my relationship with them. But the difference is the Gospel. Without it, I have no doubt that I would still be stubbornly thinking of myself as superior to my parents and to everybody else. The gospel miraculously produces in us a desire to be faithful children to our heavenly Father. And so the question I've been asking all along, how do you respond to admonition? It's really not a question about your actions. It's a question about your heart. And so the more important question that you need to answer first is, have you been humbled by the gospel? Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize our own propensity, our own tendency to walk away, to drift away from you. Father, we pray that you would humble us, help us to recognize and to see how totally depraved we are and how incredibly gracious and loving and merciful you are. Lord, help us to see that that is displayed not just in the fact that you sent your Son who willingly went to the cross for our sin so that we might receive your salvation by turning from our own sin and putting our trust in Him. But it is also seen in the fact that you continue to admonish and discipline us so that we would not go astray. Father, for every single one of us, whether we need to hear that and respond for the first time or for the thousandth time. May you humble us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.